We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. From Gibbs 10 via Apple Podcasts. From Animal Crackers to Kirk Cousins, Kevin talks about anything to distract from the misery of the D.C. sports fan. Thank you, Gibbs 10 via Apple Podcasts. Keep rating and reviewing the podcast. It's so important for us. If you haven't done it, take 30 seconds right now. Pause the podcast. If you've been listening to us on your iPhone, uh, it'll take you literally 30 seconds to give us five stars and write a quick one to two sentence review about how much you like uh, the podcast. Um, this from Bart167. I enjoy listening to the show. Find Kevin knowledgeable about DC sports. Tom and Kevin always make an enjoyable pair. I like the tips they give on suggested TV shows and movies from Wrong Turn 45. I love listening to the listening to the show on my home on my way home from work, excuse me. This show reminds me of the good old 980 days. Please bring the old gang back, Kevin Doc. Steve, Zabin, uh, and of course, Andy, um, and from, uh, DCH J 22, those who ain't and those who are knee high to a grasshopper. Yeah. We referenced that famous Michael Scott line from the first Joe Bennett, um, episode, uh, Kathy Bates episode. Uh, thank you all of you. Um, from 2508 Iceman via Apple. I listen every day. Really enjoy when Kevin's passion is on display. Enjoy when Tommy is on and when he adds to the show as well. Uh, and yeah, there are some reviews, just one out of every 15, I would say that include maybe like a four star rating and a couple of very constructive criticisms. I'm okay with that, uh, but I really do um, appreciate uh, all of you. It's so helpful for us from a revenue uh, perspective. Okay, uh, on the show today, John Fanta. Who's John Fanta, you might ask? Uh, John is a play-by-play guy for College Hoops on Fox. He's got um, a show called The Big East Shootaround. Uh, we're going to talk Final Four with him. We're going to talk Kevin Willard with him because he covers the Big East, even some Georgetown uh, and their situation as well. John's coming up next. I'll mention real quickly the Final Four being set, Villanova, 
North Carolina, Duke, and Kansas. A one seed, two twos, and an eight seed. You know, it really does feel like a Final Four that you would expect at the beginning of a tournament. Of course, nobody had Carolina uh, in the Final Four. They're an eight seed. I I think I've mentioned this before. Bill Guthridge in 2000 took Carolina to the Final Four. Bill Guthridge in his three seasons as the head coach following Dean Smith went to two Final Fours in three years. There's probably not a better Final Four hit rate. Uh, than that one. Um, That particular year, though, in 2000, that was his final season at Carolina. uh, And um, they were an eight seed. Uh, I think Brendan Haywood was on that team. Ed Coda, Julius Peppers was on that team. And they had a huge second-round upset of a number one-seeded Stanford team. And then they eventually lost in the Final Four. I think it was to Florida with Wisconsin and Michigan State on the other side of the draw, that was the Michigan State Mo Pete, um, you know, uh, Tom Izzo uh, championship team. I think that was the year. Yeah, 2000, right? Because 2001 was Duke and then 2002 was Maryland. So there you go. Um, uh, the Final Four was uh, is going to be one of the more anticipated Final Fours we've had in a long, long time. Simply put, Duke versus North Carolina. Coach K's final run through the tournament, first time they've ever matched up in the tournament, and you've got the revenge factor from the final night at Cameron Indoor for Coach K's final game in which North Carolina stormed back and ran Duke out of the gym. Carolina kind of needed that to get into the tournament. Now, they ended up being an eight seed, so I'm not going to say that they would have been on the outs had they not won that game. But there was some discussion going into that uh uh going into that game and then into the ACC tournament that that they still needed some wins. And they got one in the first round uh or the second round of the tournament beating Virginia and then they got blown out by Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. But they're playing very well. Um they got the win over St. Peter's uh, you know, I gave St. I gave Purdue out minus 13. The neighbor Nick theory did not come through. A lot of the unders did, um, but the neighbor Nick Purdue minus 13 theory didn't come through. That's for sure. And then I, uh, gave out Miami, Kansas city over yesterday after all of these unders were coming in. Um, but for those of you that, that honestly, I don't mind you taking shots at me for the neighbor, Nick, you know, getting Purdue minus 13 wrong. Just understand I understand what gambling is, that I'm going to be wrong a lot and I'm going to be right on a lot of occasions. Um, But for those of you that just kind of took the shots on the Purdue minus 13 and not acknowledge that literally on back-to-back days, I said, I like all the unders on the first night of the Sweet 16, Thursday night. And then I like all the unders on Friday as well. And the unders on those two nights went 7-1, and 7-1. and Not one of you acknowledged that when you took a shot at me for the neighbor Nick theory. (laughs) Anyway, whatever. Um, We'll talk more Final Four. I'm excited about Duke Carolina. That's, That's the nightcap game. Of course it should be. I'm telling you, this will be one of the most hyped and anticipated college basketball games in years. Years. So I'm looking forward to that one. Villanova, Kansas, unfortunately, Justin Moore tours Achilles at the end of that Elite Eight game against Houston, the DeMatha product. That's, gonna, that's a shame that Villanova won't have, 
one of their best players, Justin Moore, who's averaging 14 to 15 points a game. Uh, they're only a four, four-and-a-half-point dog somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, Duke also like a four-point favorite over Carolina. Um, I don't know. Villanova being only a four-point dog might be a lot of Kansas action with Justin Moore out. We'll see. Um, I'm sure I'll get that one wrong as well. You know, the games from over the weekend, I actually really enjoyed the Elite Eight game between Villanova and Houston. The defense in that game was unbelievable. I actually thought Houston had a chance. They offensive rebounded the shit out of the ball in the second half and just couldn't get anything to go in the bucket. They ended up with a a bunch of open threes in the second half. Villanova's defense was good, really good in the first half, but Houston got after it in the second half, and they just could not get a shot to fall and lost 50 to 44. Um that that game uh of the uh, of the Elite 8 games was the most even though you know it was the most competitive for the most part um but I really thought the intensity of that game was unbelievable. I thought Duke was really good in their win over Arkansas after you know I thought one of the real intense games of the Sweet 16 which was the Duke a Texas Tech game. North Carolina finished off St. Peter's and Kansas man outscored Miami 47 to 15 in the second half of their Elite Eight game. That was a Kansas team who had knocked off the team that I was rooting for, Providence, um, by five in the Sweet uh, 16 game on Friday night. Anyway, a hell of a Final Four to look forward to. We'll have more on that coming up with John Fanta um, next. So, Um, Here we are with the league meetings, the NFL league meetings underway. Uh, They're going to vote on this overtime thing. As I'm recording the podcast, there's nothing new on the overtime rule. Again, my prediction is they will adopt the mandatory possession for each team. The Philadelphia-Indianapolis suggestion um, for the playoffs to start. That's my guess. I've heard uh, I had Michael Phillips on the show this morning. Um, he got a sense that this was going to be a difficult thing to get past, um, but uh, we'll find out um, here probably today or tomorrow, I guess. Uh, by the way, um, the Hard Knocks team has been selected, and it is not Washington. It's the Detroit Lions. You know, Washington's now one of the final teams. I think there are four or five teams that still haven't done Hard Knocks, um, so Detroit's going to do it. I think... The NFL wants to avoid the Snyder situation right now as a daily drama on HBO. I mean, it could be really interesting, but I think that they are a little bit gun-shy that it might be too interesting. Um, So they will feature the Detroit Lions on Hard Knocks um, this this summer. Some stadium news that's come out in the last uh, few hours and the last couple of days. Michael Phillips had this story on Friday that Virginia has lowered their commitment to uh, the Washington Commanders for a new stadium in Virginia from a billion dollars to $350 million. Michael told me this morning on the radio show that essentially they realized they were bidding against themselves uh, because Virginia, because uh, Maryland and D.C. don't have that much interest um, all the while today, the news broke that Buffalo is going to get their new $1.4 billion stadium in Erie County. And the owners, the Pagulas, are going to only have to come up with about $350 million on their own. Uh, the other billion dollars essentially is going to be covered by the state and the county and, and other uh, entities. 
Uh, Dan Snyder might end up, and Tommy's predicted this all along, he may end up in Landover on the same site for his new stadium because they own the land there. And Virginia's still offering up to $350 million, but it's a $3 billion project that they were talking about, whether that was you know out by Dulles Airport or in Dumfries, for crying out loud, or Woodbridge. Um, so I think that's an interesting development over the last couple of days, especially with what Buffalo's uh, getting. And then there was this from Palm Beach, Florida, where the league meetings are taking place right now. Uh, all of the AFC coaches were available to the media today. Ron Rivera and the NFC coaches will be available tomorrow. Well, a lot of the questions for Frank Reich were from Washington media members and others asking why they traded Carson Wentz. And Reich said a lot of nice things. He said, I really believe he can be he can be a top 10 quarterback. That's not just a given. That has to be earned and proven, so we're all hoping that happens for him. Uh, he said, quote, I love the guy. I really do, and I think he's a really good quarterback. He's going, to, he's going to play really well for the commanders, and I'm excited to see that. We as an organization thought highly of Carson in a lot of ways. Obviously, we traded for him, but then secondly, sometimes you can't explain everything. You want to, but you just have to make a move that you think is right, closed quote. Um, and then he said this. He said, quote, ultimately, there was a consensus. You don't want to have seller's remorse. We had already determined that wasn't going to happen. This was well thought out. It was not a quick decision, closed quote, on the decision to move on from him. He can say all of the nice things that he wants to say. And Frank Reich and any, most coaches, certainly after trading a guy, that they had just traded for a year earlier are going to try their best to take the high road. Reich is that kind of guy. I think Chris Ballard maybe uh, as well. There's there's an explanation here that's a lot more honest than they're giving. And when he said you don't want to have seller's remorse, he's kind of telling you there was a consensus. You don't want to have seller's remorse. We had already determined that was going to happen. They were going to move on from him, period. And when he said some things you can't explain, you can. There's an explanation for it. They're just not going to give it publicly. But again, Washington got an upgrade at quarterback, and if it turns out that he is a top 10 quarterback in this league, they will have the last laugh because they will have made him work while two previous franchise, uh, fr- franchises tried and failed. Uh, one other quick thing um, from the NFL, uh, and that is uh, John Lynch was asked today about why Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't been traded because there was some reporting over the weekend that he might be released, and Lynch said he's absolutely not going to be released. He said, quote, he's too good a player. I think Jimmy will be playing for us or, or will be playing for someone else, uh, obviously. He's too good of a player not to be. essentially saying if they don't get what they want for him, they're going to keep him. This has always been in the back of my mind as it relates to Garoppolo because I know that Kyle really likes him. And I don't know that they're 100% convinced yet that Trey Lance is going to be the guy. I don't know that they're 100% convinced on that. Uh, So 
Uh, we shall see. Uh, by the way, ESPN came out with their updated NFL power rankings post-free agency, even though free agency is still going on. Um, Buffalo, the number one team in the league, followed by the Rams, followed by the Chiefs. Obviously, they have moved on from Tariq Hill. Tampa is four, Cincinnati's five, Green Bay six, the Chargers seven, the 49ers eight, the Cowboys nine, and the Broncos ten. And again, an all way too early power rankings. Uh, where are the other NFC East teams? And where is Washington? Well, Philadelphia comes in at 19. And Washington comes in for, uh, at 23. And that is actually two spots up from where they were at the very end of the season post-Super Bowl. Uh, the two spots they moved up from 25 to 23. Still four spots behind Philadelphia, if you care. Um, and 14 spots behind the Cowboys. And the Giants are just two spots behind Washington at 25th. For Washington right now, you know, it's about adding some defensive help at linebacker more than anything else. Uh, And as we get closer to the draft, and we're about a month away, um, we will start talking about the linebackers in the draft, the corners in the draft, the safeties in the draft, the offensive linemen in the draft, and I guess – because many of you seem convinced this is still a major need, um, the wide receivers in the draft. And by the way, let's not forget the quarterbacks in the draft. Okay, when we come back, John Fanta will be the guest. Uh, We will talk some college hoops with him, and then I will finish up with some Oscars talk from last night. Uh, That's all coming up on the show uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, for those of you who are giving me a hard time uh, about giving out Purdue minus 13 in UCLA on Friday night, my apologies. I also gave out Miami-Kansas over the total yesterday. Don't forget, I did give out all 
four unders on night one of the Sweet 16 and all four unders on night two of the Sweet 16. Unders in the 12 games played since Thursday were an incredible 11 and one. Uh, so there you go. Uh, four and a half point favorite is Duke. Four point favorite is Kansas in the two semifinal games on Saturday in New Orleans. Our guest right now is John Fanta. John uh, is a part of, of college basketball on Fox. He's the host of the Big East Shootaround. Um, you've seen him on FS1, NBA TV, lots of different things. John joins us right now to talk college hoops. And I also, with John, because he's such a Big East guy, want to get his thoughts on the Maryland uh, Kevin Willard hire. John, I'm, I'm a big Terp, so this was not a tournament for us this year. Um, but we'll, we'll circle back to that in a moment. What do you make of this Final Four? Like, you know, I've got a lot of Villanova friends here, and we've de- been debating for years as to whether or not Villanova is a true blue blood. I think Kansas, Kentucky, Carolina, Duke are kind of the Mount Rushmore currently of college basketball, but Villanova and Jay Wright are closing in on that, aren't they? They've closed in on it, in my opinion, Kevin. When you think about the fact that they have an opportunity this week to win a third national championship in the last six years. and one of those years, there was no NCAA tournament because of COVID-19. Jay Wright has built the winningest program in college basketball over the last 10 years. It's wild. They've won more games than anybody. They have owned the decade. And this is a team that is not even as talented as the others that you just spoke of. So that is perhaps why nationally, People do not identify Villanova as the blue blood, but they've won at the rate of a blue blood. They really have, and they have controlled an era of time. They have point guard play that has spanned the last 10 years that has been exceptional. You go from Ryan Archdiakono to Jalen Brunson, guys that have made it in the NBA, to now Colin Gillespie as a super senior who has charged Villanova. Of course, losing Justin Moore to a, a torn Achilles is a brutal injury for this team at this yeah. juncture. But the fact that they're in the Final Four with a team that I I don't think is as talented as the three others speaks to Jay Wright, why he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame now, and why Villanova has become the winningest program in college basketball over the last 10 years. It's nothing short of remarkable because a small school outside of Philadelphia, you would never pair them with the phrase blue blood. But that's why we're having this debate because they just win. Yeah, and obviously with Raleigh way back in the day, they had the success in the championship in 85. But you know what's interesting, John, as you're talking? You know, there was this stretch of like six or seven years where he couldn't get out of the first weekend of the tournament. And I remember a lot of the Villanova people. He had been to that one Final Four where they got blown out by Carolina. And, you know, and we're talking like 2013, 2014, that time frame. There were Villanova fans that were ready to bail on Jay Wright. I remember when Gary Williams retired in 2011 here in the Maryland Open, uh, Maryland job became open. Villanova had had a couple of tough years in a row of missing uh, the, the second weekend of the tournament, and I think they actually missed the tournament altogether. And people were talking about maybe Jay Wright as being potential uh, a potential to Maryland. But do you remember that stretch? A lot of Villanova people were unhappy with him during that stretch. Yeah, they wanted him gone. There was a time when Villanova people thought Jay Wright should be gone from the job in Philadelphia-like fashion. Uh, Look, he wasn't getting deep in the tournament. He was not accomplishing what they strive to accomplish. 
he had a coming to reality moment, a, a come to Jesus moment, if you will, where he self-reflected. And he looked at how he was doing things. And he talked about this earlier today. They ended up benefiting more than anybody else off of the Big East breakup back in 2012, 2013, when all those schools separated off Syracuse, Louisville, uh, Pittsburgh, West Virginia, Notre Dame, you name it. And everybody, everybody leaves. And now you've got this Catholic seven. Jay Wright said what changed the approach at Villanova was he sat down with his staff and said, look, we are in an authentic league in that, yeah, it's not with the Louisville, it's not with uh, the Syracuse of the world. And, and that crushed him when the old Big East broke up. But he said, look, we're in a league with like-minded schools. Let's try to be the best basketball schools in this basketball league because there's no football in the Big East nowadays. And he said that helped us. He said that helped us. It helped us just be authentic, not try to out Kentucky, Kentucky, or out Duke, Duke. There's certain guys that those programs get every single year. Villanova doesn't get one and done. At least they haven't. They haven't been in on them either. They would take them. Right. Jay Wright said this morning. Jay Wright said this morning. I would take a one and done, but they would have to get used to the way we do things. It's a classic example of a program that identified the lane they can be best in. And that idea of three- and four-year players who just get better, Kevin, is the type of thing where it's worked out because that's what wins this time of year. Experience wins more in March than it loses. And Jay Wright has had that, that reflection of, here's how we can be at our best at Villanova. That's different from Duke. It's different from Carolina. It's different from Kentucky. But that's really worked at this school outside of Philadelphia. He's identified a niche, and he's been able to flourish in it. You said, and I didn't mean for this conversation to focus solely on Villanova, but I think this is an interesting conversation. You said that he said today that he does miss the old Big East. And I'm wondering, you know, you know, one of the, the one of the things around these parts, especially for those of us that follow it very closely, it's like how does Jay Wright just keep coming into this market, into this DMV, and loading up on players from the DC, you know, metro area? And he's done it and it's been a big part of his success. But I wonder, like if Pitt and Syracuse and Notre Dame and West Virginia, who am I forgetting? Uh, Louisville, um, if those yep. teams were still in the league and and, and and the Big East were still kind of the old Big East. Do you think he would have still gotten to the point where he's he's you know won multiple national championships, heading for potentially a third? Or would the competitive landscape of the Big East had th- would it have thwarted that in some way? He said no. He said this morning to the press that that wouldn't have happened, not to this degree. It, it allowed them to become a lot more comfortable when when you talk to people that were part of that Big East breakup, Kevin. The football ADs would meet in their own and meeting at five directors. Football flag directors would meet in their own room. The basketball flag directors would meet in their own room. And then they'd come together for cocktails. There was no synergy. There was no connectivity between the football and basketball schools. The breakup, it was only a matter of time that it would happen. And as much as the old Big East is the old Big East, and there's been documentaries made about it, yep. and it speaks for itself, this this new league has been able to frame out 
an ideology that is based on basketball in a world where football is king. And Jay Wright has been able to benefit off of that. And he said, look, we come together, and they will again next month in Florida, to discuss the year that was in basketball, how they become a better basketball conference. When basketball is your priority, you better be good at it. <laughs> you, you know, you, you can't afford to flop this time of year. And the Big East has been able to, to flourish here off of this makeup. And I don't think Jay Wright's winning two, could be three national titles, if not this year, then in a year or two or three or whatever. He's going to have a, a great shot to do it because he's got such a consistent recipe. I don't think that happens in a landscape where you're in a league that has agendas and that has a lack of authenticity. And instead, you're in a league where you have made, in the last two weeks, close to $27 million in NCAA tournament units for your conference to be broken up. So, look, he, he has, he's gotten this league from being just good to being a, a league that has a seat at the big boy table. You can't just say Power 5 in college basketball. You know why? Villanova represents the Big East and has done so in three of the last six Final yeah. Fours and as a result has a place at the big boy table. So I don't think this is happening in the old league. I don't. It's 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 such an interesting topic because you know I'm a Maryland guy and for the first few years you know very nostalgic about the ACC hated the move as a basketball first school you know it was much more important for us to be in the ACC, then move to the Big Ten. Um, And, you know, all of the conference reshuffling, I mean, obviously the ACC isn't the same anymore in terms of the teams in there. I mean, hell, they made Maryland's crossover rival pit, you know, in in the final two years of of being in the league. So things um, were were changing. But I wonder if you believe what Coach Thompson told me, because we had the opportunity to work at the same radio station for years. And I remember Coach telling me once, If football had just gone to a playoff many years earlier and not, you know, kept with the bowl system and just the BCS game, but had gone to a football playoff, let's just say in the early 2000s, that conference reshuffling probably would have never happened. Do you agree with that or not? Well, I don't know if I agree with it because money is such a just such a driving force to all this and the money is different today than it was 15 20 25 years ago television rights are so so desired maybe maybe the playoff doesn't force as much reconfiguration but take a look at texas and oklahoma going to the southeastern conference yeah yeah like, true like they're still re- it's it's still going on and it's going to continue to happen like it, 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 this is not just beginning. It's it's uh, it's one of those things that has happened now for for many years, and I think you're going to see more movement. Kansas football is stuck; they're in a pit of misery. You know, I could see them doing what Connecticut did, and 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 eventually saying, "Look, our football's so bad. How do we elevate ourselves in the sport that people love here, and that's basketball?" And so they they become an independent in football, and they figure out a way into a basketball league. Or maybe a, a, a league does take their football. But the point is, this is not something to me that would just be prevented nowadays because we're seeing teams, we're seeing schools, rather, leave their leagues from greener pastures. And the greener pastures are nothing other than dollars. Yeah. Dollars. 
any administration is going to look at the money. They're not going to look at competition or preserving a rivalry. They want the money, and the money comes via football. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, you know, if you if you go back to that time, like in 2005, like the ACC was taking on Boston College and Miami, and what it really was was the ability to get to the point where you had enough teams in the league so you could have a conference football championship game because it was so much money. And maybe if they had just allowed those conferences to have conference championship games regardless of how many schools, and then there was a playoff after that. But you're right. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the the moves to the um, the SEC um, by uh, Texas and Oklahoma uh, just proves – well, I mean, right now, the SEC is the holy grail in college sports, you know, SEC football. Let's get back to this Final Four because I said this in the open to the show today. I don't know if I can remember, in my opinion, a game that will be as hyped and as anticipated – as Duke Carolina in the nightcap of the Final Four on Saturday night. What do you think? Yeah, I can't think of a game that's more anticipated than this one. Obviously, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson in the 1980s is one that people bring up. But think about this. It's the best rivalry in college basketball, okay? And it's, it's, the best, it's one of the best in sports. It's got to be top five, if not top six or seven in sports anywhere. Yep. Now you have their first meeting ever in the NCAA tournament. All right, that alone would be spectacular. But now you have this spectacle of Mike Krzyzewski coming onto the floor in New Orleans in his final season. And look, the last game he coaches as a college coach is either going to be Saturday or Monday. And if it's Saturday, it means that in Manly Fieldhouse's close-type fashion by Georgetown that North Carolina could say, Coach, Mike Krzyzewski's career is closed, and it was closed by us. Think about the electricity that can be produced from that moment or the revenge that Coach K could get when Carolina came into Cameron Indoor and Duke wants revenge, and I think they're going to get it on Saturday because I think this team is playing the best basketball out of any of these four teams, and they're going to be emotionally fueled to get back at Carolina. There's so many storylines to this game, and I think, Kevin, this comes at a perfect time in college basketball. Why? Last year the tournament was in Indianapolis. There just wasn't as much interest in it. COVID derailed that, and the season before, COVID kept the the tournament from even happening. So college basketball has been lost from the national landscape for close to three years at the level that it's going to be at on Saturday, which is a level unlike anything we've seen. College Hoops has had a terrific season. But in a way, it needed to bounce back this year for its profile. What better way for the sport to gain the attention of the football fan, the baseball fan, the soccer fan, the random fan, the person that's inside their home on Saturday night with not much going on, than to watch this game, the theater of this game. It's more than just 40 minutes. It's the lead-up. It's the buzz in the crowd. And it's the fact that you have Kansas and Villanova fans there who are both fans of of programs that if they haven't become because you're on the other side of it but i would say have become blue blood and big brands as well the superdome fits eighty thousand people i would bet you right now there'll be ninety thousand people in that building on saturday to witness history it is going to be spectacular and the secondary ticket market prices have reached four figures it's unbelievable 
Yeah, it, I mean, the tickets for the Duke-Carolina game at Cameron Indoor for Coach K's final game were as high as we've seen, I mean, higher than Super Bowls, recent Super Bowls, and, you know, that's a much smaller venue, obviously. It is amazing, isn't it? You know, as as a college basketball guy you are, and I'm, I'm, I've been a lifelong massive college basketball fan, that this is the first meeting in the tournament between Duke and Carolina. You know, the ACC, for all of the success they've had in the tournament I think Maryland and Duke played in a final four Duke and Georgia Tech played in a final and Virginia and Carolina um, uh, played in a semifinal the year that uh, Indiana with Isaiah Thomas blew out Carolina on the day that Reagan got shot back in 81 um, that that is those are the only matchups in the final four the revenge factor alone um, you know with these two teams playing from what happened uh, on Kay's final night at Cameron indoor makes this uh, incredible I'm with you too I think Duke's the better team I mean my god they have I don't know six or seven pros um, on that team uh, before um, I get your prediction on on, on the, the uh, a real prediction including kind of you know with the point spread do you think Villanova is really hurt by more the DeMatha product being out do they have a shot at get against Kansas or not I, I think it's going to be tough. However, I'll never doubt Jay Wright and his ability to get a team ready. And he said one of the unique things about the Final Four is, as opposed to the, the first couple weeks of the tournament, you get the layoff until Saturday. He gets a full week to get his team ready. But Villanova does not have much of a bench. They're going to rely on Brian Antoine and Chris Archidiacono yeah. to try to supply something off the bench. The fact is, without Justin Moore... It, it reveals some flaws in Villanova's rebounding ability and their defensive ability. Moore can guard positions one to five, so you lose a defender. Jay Wright said he's the most valuable player on the team, so logic would suggest Kansas is going to win this game, and the oddsmakers have put the spread at four. You know why the oddsmakers haven't put the spread at seven or eight? Because Jay Wright's a Hall of Fame coach, You're right. and he will give them a chance to win. Yeah. He's going to play. He's going to play Raleigh Massimino ball and limit possession and hope that they make enough shots to have a chance. Well, they've been a low-possession team all year long. I think it was 330th in the NCAA um, coming in. And uh, I'll tell you what, the Elite Eight game against Houston, that was a fascinating game. I mean, first of all, both teams defensively were awesome. Houston really... Like, Gillespie could not get any open space. And I thought Villanova survived, you know, a lot of offensive rebounds in that second half and a lot of missed shots kind of point blank, including a lot of missed kick-out open threes um, that Houston, you know, has knocked down at various points during the year. Um, That was an odd game, but a really intense and physical defensive game. But, you know, the 15 offensive rebounds, I think 12 of them came in in the second half, one for 20 from the three point line and whatever they were from the field overall uh, and some of those were point blank misses I thought Villanova was kind of lucky to get out of there what'd you think yeah I, I think so too but they've defended really well yeah, they're they a did. physical team and and they've been a really good defensive team as the season's come along last year they were just inside the top 70 in the Kempom defensive efficiency metric they were like 66 67 floating around there in the metrics, if you're into that stuff, and even if you're not, you got to respect the fact they've taken a 40-spot leap yep. to being a top-25 defensive team. That is a difference. And Eric Dixon's a big part of that. He's a physical five-man who makes it hard for teams to score on them inside. And Jermaine Samuels 
is as athletic a player as you're going to see. The kid is a gazelle. So I think one of the things that's underrated with Nova is, Kevin, on the interior, they make it hard for you to score easy buckets. They're undersized, but you wouldn't know it with how physical they play. Yeah, I mean, I think Ken Palm, I think I read this morning, adjusted uh, uh, defensive efficiency. It was like Villanova and Kansas are like 19 and 18 uh, for the year. All right, um, real quickly before I ask you about Kevin Willard and uh, one question about Georgetown. Uh, Kansas minus four, uh, who do you like? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, like, I think as the week goes along, I'm going to be more and more convinced that Villanova keeps it close. But I'm going to give you the, the answer. Kansas should win this game. They really should. They, they've got the, the scoring punch of Remy Martin and the All-American talent of Ochai Agbaji. McCormick can take Dixon in the post. And if Christian Braun or Jalen Wilson give Kansas anything, then Kansas is going to have more complimentary scoring than Villanova. So, man, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm scared of the fact that I'm going against Villanova because they've so many times they've proven me wrong. But I I think that Kansas is going to find a way to win. You know what else? Kansas is defending far better than they were earlier this year, and they showed that against Miami in the second half. So I'm going to go with the Jayhawks in this game. All right. I kind of would lean Villanova. It just seems like the line's short, and they're begging you to take Kansas with Justin Moore out. So I'll, I'll go contrarian on that one and take uh, Jay Wright and Nova. In the nightcap, Duke's a four-point favorite over Carolina. Do they cover that easily? I think that they do. I, I just like the way this team's playing. I think that Jeremy Roach is is such a a game changer with the level he's playing at right now. And you know what else really stands out to me, Kevin? Mark uh, Mark Williams is yeah. playing at such a, a high level. I mean, he is really, really playing at a different level on the interior. Mark Williams has changed the way that Duke can play. I thought he owned the paint in the matchup against Arkansas. So Duke defensively is a vintage Coach K team. You know why? Coach K spent the entire summer with them. He didn't go out recruiting because it's his last year. He got to spend the entire summer with his team and working on their defensive technique. Well, Mark Williams protects the rim. Paolo Bancaro is a guy that could be the most talented player on the floor in this game. In fact, he is. And if Duke keeps Caleb Love or R.J. Davis a little bit offbeat, Duke's going to win this game. I do like the Blue Devils. Tell me what Maryland got in Kevin Willard. Maryland got a guy who will work hard. It sounds cliche, but he will roll up his sleeves and get to work. He's already making hires like Tony Skin and David Cox. You're only as good as your staff. He's bringing in a solid staff. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is not a hire where you're bringing in a Bruce Pearl or John Calipari type of personality. Kevin is not this huge salesman who's going to, to be all over the place selling coffee or handing out treats or handing out tickets or whatnot. I'm going to tell you what he wants to do, Kevin. He wants to be a basketball coach, and he wants to win. And he won a lot of games at a place that's very difficult to win games at in Seton Hall. He is a technician of a game planner. This is a guy who comes from the Patino School of Thought. I could tell you I was an undergrad at Seton Hall University. And when I was there, I would do a lot of my reports late at night because I was at class all day. So when I was a student journalist, I would do a lot of work late at night. I'm talking 11 o'clock midnight. When you're a student and you're trying to hustle, that's what you got to do. I can't tell you how many times I would be in Seton Hall's gym 
and the window to Kevin Willard's office would be above the gym, and he was the one guy that was in that office. I could tell you that that happened numerous, numerous times. And I found it interesting that a head coach was consistently in his office at midnight looking at film, looking at ways that he could get his team better. I know this, that Kevin is correct in what he said in his press conference. No one's going to outwork him. And here's the other thing that you can guarantee, Kevin. He will develop players. You might see a guy come in as a freshman and not think a whole lot of him on the Terrapins. I guarantee you'll think differently of him by the time he gets to his sophomore, junior, senior year. So, look, Willard's going to have to hit the transfer portal. He knows what the task is at hand. He handled the pressures of the metropolitan area and the media and all that. And, and I'm not trying to put his personality down at all. I'm just saying this. He's focused on being a basketball coach. Is the personality that much different from what Maryland fans have seen in terms of personality? No. But it's a lot different when you're winning games. Winning cures all. And Kevin Willard does know what it takes to win, and he knows the Big Ten. He was never afraid to schedule the Big Ten. And he beat the Big Ten more times than he lost to the Big Ten. So I think it's a guy who's proven, a guy who works his ass off, and a guy who's connected in the industry, giving him some assistant coaches that are high-profile names. Tony Skin will get DMV kids. David Cox is a really good assistant both in X's and O's and recruiting capabilities. This is a staff that's coming together, and the future's bright for Maryland because they got a guy who's going to do things his way. He's not borrowing from others. Kevin does things his way. His teams defend, and they will rebound the basketball. Don't, don't get it questioned. Maryland basketball will be ready for the fight that the Big Ten Conference brings because Kevin Willard coaches that way. You, you know, I, everything you said makes a lot of sense, and we've heard a lot of it in, in sharing that personal story about the light being on um, at midnight uh, or later. Um, but in terms of the X's and O's, you said, you know, Tony Skin's going to handle, you know, the recruiting, and then, you know, Cox will handle some of the X's and O's. I know he's a very good defensive coach. What were the criticisms from Seton Hall fans of Kevin Willard, if there were any? Yeah, that half-court offensive execution could be off at times, and if he didn't have a great guard, his team struggled. But look, every every really good college basketball team needs a, needs guard play, yep. and that won't be a, a problem at Maryland. I think that just at times he ran a weave offense in the half court, so at times that that could that could be an area where the offense could get stagnant. But but and, and the other thing was January. Uh, for whatever reason, his team struggled once the calendar turned to January, and he would get them going again in February. So a matter of consistency throughout the arc of a season was always interesting because I'll tell you, Kevin, he had one of the hottest teams in the country earlier this year. The calendar turned to January, and they just they were not very good. I think they only got two or three wins in the entire month. So those are the two things. But overall, you're, like the, the, there was much more praise than criticism of this guy. He's not the coach of Maryland if that's not the case. All right, last one, and I'll let you run, and I appreciate the time so much. So Georgetown obviously had a disastrous season Patrick's coming back. They've hired Kevin Nickelberry, who, you know, uh, took over for Will Wade when he was finally fired at LSU. Um, what do you make about the, uh, you know, from from a guy that really follows the Big East? Tell me a little bit about the Georgetown situation right now. Well, the fact is, Georgetown basketballs this past season was as big of a disappointment as they've had in the history of their program. And they would tell you that. 
Georgetown basketball doesn't want to lose games. And, and, and that's never been. It's never been in their DNA. Now, you're never going to fire Patrick Ewing. And I can tell you right now that for the people that are comparing Patrick Ewing to other former players who have coached, i.e. Chris Mullen, and, and Penny Hardaway's been looped in a little bit, although that's a bit different now, and, and the NCAA violations would certainly suggest it, uh, that, that are coming against right. Memphis in the last week. Patrick Ewing wants to get this done. Patrick Ewing wants to win. He is willing to put the work in. There are other guys, former players, I've already named one, who have stepped into a job and have worked two to three days a week, and that's what they believe is college basketball coaching, and the pageantry of the university speaks for itself. You can't get things done that way, and Ewing knows that. But I used the reference earlier with Maryland. You're only as good as your staff. And the fact is Ewing's staff has not been good enough here in the recent years. And that's why you had to add a Kevin Nickelberry, who's going to be able to identify talent both in and beyond the area, did it at LSU, he's going to bring some players with him, and Georgetown will benefit from it. They had to make staff changes, and that's what they're in the process of doing. But look, this past season, a failure. I mean, by any standards, by all standards, Georgetown basketball cannot be that bad. They know it. Everybody knows it. I do think, though, that Patrick Ewing can get this going. I do. I I know that some people would think, how could you say that right now? But you don't go to Madison Square Garden and win a Big East tournament by a fluke. There's only, let's see, four coaches in the Big East who could have said they've won a Big East tournament since 2013. Maryland now has one of them. And Ed Cooley's the other with, with Patrick Ewing right. and Jay Wright. So Patrick Ewing can coach. He He's got years and years of NBA X's and O's out of timeouts that I've heard other coaches say it's hard to defend his team. He's got to not only be able to get talent, you've got to retain talent. And that's where you need a staff to maintain good relationships and keep kids happy throughout their time at Georgetown. And that's why Nickelberry's the first positive of the Georgetown offseason because they need better staffing around Ewing. John, this was great. I mean, you were awesome. Thank you so much. At John underscore Fanta on Twitter. Um, We've got a great Final Four coming up on Saturday. I really appreciate the conversation. Take care. Kevin, thank you. Really great conversation. And I hope for you and the fellow Terrapin fans that the future is bright because college basketball is better when Maryland is better. And I, I do think that the Kevin Willard hire certainly work out there and and uh, someone that was close to him i i wish people in college park the very best because they they deserve good basketball chapters ahead that's a great fan base so thanks for having me yeah it's a great fan base and it's it's tough for me to say this but i actually it's not that i like georgetown but i think the game is better also when georgetown's uh good and not owen 20 oh, sure. in the big east um thanks john so much really appreciate it thank you thanks John was great. I enjoyed that. Uh, CJ, my my good friend and longtime program director at 980, uh, suggested that he would be a great guest, and he was, uh, at John underscore Fanta, uh, to follow him on Twitter. Uh, we'll finish up with uh, what happened last night at the Oscars and uh, with just a quick thought on the passing of one of the great drummers, Taylor Hawkins from over the weekend. That uh, both of those things right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Jada, I love you. J 
G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. Alright? That was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Get my name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane joke. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can go, okay. That was the greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay. So we are here to uh, give a documentary out, to give an Oscar out for best documentary. Now the beauty of documentaries, because they, they make you, when you watch one, you feel smart. Like you watched them, like, you know, like you read a book or something. But all you really did was get high and watch Netflix. So here we go. Here we go. Yeah, that happened last night at the Oscars. Uh, as I mentioned, I think in the open, I was not watching it live. Uh, I had um, spent the first half hour with my wife watching the Oscars, and that was enough for me. And I decided that I was going to watch the next episode of Winning Time, the uh, Lakers Dynasty Winning Time uh, show on HBO that I've recommended here recently. And I fell asleep at the beginning of that. I, I will watch that um, probably tonight to get all caught up on Winning Time. Um, but she woke me up to tell me about the Will Smith slap of Chris Rock. And then for like 45 minutes between midnight and 1245, I was immersed in all of the follow-up uh, from that. Let me just say, I, I've never seen G.I. Jane 1, the Demi Moore um, movie, I guess, where she shaved her head. Uh, 1997 movie. So if I had been watching that live, the joke would have sailed right over my head. Um, I was unfamiliar with uh, the movie. And by the way, I had no idea that Jada Pinkett Smith uh, was um, someone suffering from alpecia. Um, you know, the... Uh, the baldness um, medical uh, condition, which I guess also entails a lot of other things medically um, as well. Look, I'll, I'll net it out for you. Um, I am not one that, uh, and I don't know what's gone. By the time you listen to this, we may find out that this was an act, an actual ruse. I'm not one that thought it was. Um, and at this point, um, I don't think it was. Um, I'm also not one of those that reacted, you know, with... Um, oh my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And oh my God, you know, Will Smith needs to be arrested by the LAPD and removed from uh, the premises. Um, everybody's entitled to their own perspective and everybody's perspective, I'm sure, is based on their own personal life experiences. Um, I, I certainly think that if uh, Chris Rock knew that she was suffering from alopecia, that was a bit of a low blow, over-the-top, mean-spirited, even if it was off-the-cuff, uh, comment. Um, and 
I certainly don't think the place for Will Smith's response to that in the protection of his wife, who he clearly saw was, you know, upset by it, even though he laughed initially, um, but clearly saw that she was uh, angered and upset by what he had said. I don't think that the proper place for a response was on national television, worldwide national television at the Oscars last night. That was a uh, let me uh, talk to you, Chris, backstage, maybe even outside a little bit later on uh, in the evening. But um, I would also be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I didn't have some empathy and understanding for him being emotionally wrapped up into sort of a protective mode of his wife. Um, not everybody feels the same way and people feel that things should be settled differently. And certainly I think more times than not, they should be settled um, with, uh, with words and conversation, uh, rather than slaps or punches. Um, it was more of a Jawan Howard slap than it was a punch. Um, but, uh, I, I certainly understand that response and I'm not going to criticize the response, uh, to think in terms of my wife has been insulted uh, on national television and she's got a medical condition and she's not very happy about it. So I'm not very happy about it. Um, again, was that the setting? Was that the, uh, way for him to respond? Uh, probably not backstage, uh, in the parking lot may have been a better spot for it. Um, you know, and, and I'm by the way, all for comedic privilege or whatever you want to call that. I mean, I'm not for, you know, Jesus, God, I mean, Don Rickles. And what if it had been Ricky Gervais? I mean, Ricky Gervais is one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, he's certainly insulted many people. And people that show up to that event, they know their fair game, especially if they were in, you know, movies um, that are being talked about for much of the night. By the way, I didn't see any of those movies other than King Richard. I did see, I, I saw King Richard. And Will Smith was brilliant as Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Um, it was a really, really good movie. Um, I don't know how uh, accurate the movie was, the portrayal was, but there have been some accounts that say that some of it was certainly exaggerated, but uh, Will Smith was brilliant in that movie. I mean, he's been brilliant in almost everything he's done. I mean, playing Ali was just incredible. Um, but here's the one part that Again, I respect everybody's opinion and everybody's perspective on this. So don't take this the wrong way. But if your initial reaction was, oh my God, he was assaulted. We need, you know, the police need to be called. He needs to be cuffed and taken to jail for this physical assault of Chris Rock. I can't really relate to that one. Um, that was not my response, even though I know it was many people's responses that, you know, Chris Rock needs to press charges against Will Smith. Nah, no, he didn't. And he didn't, as it turned out, um, or he hasn't anyway. Um, that's not the way those kinds of things get settled more times than not. If you've had and been involved and had experiences that are similar to those. I mean, think about for some of you guys out there, um, you know, the number of, you know, the number of incidents that you've been involved in, whether in a bar and, you know, you regret it after the fact or not, but these, these are not the kinds of things typically, certainly not a slap. All right. That is resolved 
with charges being pressed. I'm not saying that what he did was legal and that it wasn't technically an assault. Okay, that's for others to decide, but that's not the kind of thing that gets resolved with a call to the LAPD. In fact, I was reminded of this. Um, I was reminded of the night that there was a game between the Rockets and the Clippers, and there was a Chris Paul Blake Griffin incident that you know spilled over into the locker rooms and into the halls of I think Staples Center uh, a few years back, and and the TNT crew of Ernie Johnson, Kenny Smith, and Charles Barkley and Shaq. Um, you know, we're discussing it as there was a reporter on site talking about how there was a police presence and the LAPD had been called. And this was the conversation, hysterical conversation between Barkley, Shaq, Kenny Smith, uh, uh, as the reporter finished up her report. They're laughing at the incident. The, the whole incident. They don't believe these two guys. I played in the NBA for 16 years, and I've been on, the, on TV for 18 years. It's the first time I ever heard police presence. <laughs> they got, wait, wait, they got a police presence? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, wait, come on, man. Numerous social media reports that, that LAPD was called. LAPD was called. <laughs> These two, man. Come on, man. Nobody laughing. Come on, man. Because they, they, they would. Oh, man. Come on, man. They would relish. Come on, for a guy to come in the locker room after them. Hey, Chuck. No. Hey, Chuck. I don't Hello, know. Hello, please. I don't know why. Hello, please. Chris Paul trying to beat me up. <laughs> this is, hey, this is Blake Griffin. Chris Paul trying to get in the locker room. Get down here and save me. Wait. Hey. Hey, just the Jordan. Uh, trying to get in the locker room. I, I certainly doubt that it was Clipper uh, players who were requesting any kind of Somebody had to call the police. Uh, two guys who would relish guys coming in their locker room. Come on, man. Uh, are laughing at the fact Jack, that Chris Paul police is present. coming to get the police to get Blake anyway. That just one of those nights on that TNT inside the NBA show with those guys, which is the greatest, in my opinion, studio show in the history of sports television. Uh, that was a funny night. Again, everybody's entitled to their perspective. Um, I think if Chris Rock knew that she was, you know, suffering from that medical condition that was a little bit over the top. You know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequence, even though I would never, ever want to thwart some of the comedy that's out there. It is comedy, um, but that was, you know, a bit uh, of a personal attack. Um, and at the same time, you know, I totally can understand Will Smith's reaction to that when he saw how upset his wife was. And... Uh, Again, probably not the setting for him to take it out on him. I'll tell you what, Chris Rock really handled it really well. Didn't really, you know, get pushed back much by the slap. You know, Will Smith may have wanted, if he was really pissed off, I mean, there could have been a closed fist and a real injury there. And can you imagine Denzel and Bradley Cooper and everybody running up to break it up? That would have been an all-timer on the Oscars. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't react, uh, again, to each their own, 
Um, but I'm, I, I certainly didn't expect, and I'm glad that, that Chris Rock did not press charges against Will Smith. The two of them can settle it in their own way. Uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to uh, end the show with this. Taylor Hawkins, the drummer of the Foo Fighters on one of my all-time favorite Foo Fighters songs, My Hero. Uh, If you're not a fan and you don't know who Taylor Hawkins is, I'll just tell you, he's one of the great drummers of the last 25 years, a longtime drummer of the Foo Fighters. Uh, He passed away on Friday. Uh, Lots of substances in his system found dead in a hotel room in Bogota, Colombia, uh, 50 years old, too young, um, a phenomenal talent. Uh, you know, Dave Grohl, uh, the original drummer of the Foo Fighters was William Goldsmith. Uh, Grohl had an issue with him, didn't mind him being a touring drummer. Actually on one of the early albums, the story is that Grohl went in after the fact and re-recorded all of the drums. Uh, Grohl was the drummer of Nirvana, um, and uh, he just, uh, Goldsmith wasn't getting it to Dave Grohl's standards. He's actually called that one of his biggest regrets, the way he handled that, but he was looking for a drummer. Um, And interestingly, or ironically, um, Taylor Hawkins was the touring drummer for Alanis Morissette during her Jagged Little Pill tour of 1995-1996 and the Foo Fighters were opening um, on part of that tour for Alanis Morissette. That's how Taylor Hawkins became introduced and became friendly with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters and the rest is history. He chose to go with the Foo Fighters. Obviously, Alanis Morissette, he was just a touring drummer for a solo artist, whereas uh, he became a full-fledged member and a legendary member of the Foo Fighters um, over the last 25 years or whatever it's been. Um, but uh, a recommendation, um, if you haven't seen the HBO documentary on Alanis Morissette and that particular album, which was the second biggest selling album of the 1990s, you don't have to be a huge fan of hers uh, to really like the documentary. It was well done, and Taylor Hawkins was a big part of that documentary because he and Alanis Morissette became very close, and she was devastated when he left her touring band. I think she understood, um, but he was devastated. Um, she was devastated, excuse me. Um, and the tributes coming in about his death are coming in from all corners of the entertainment universe. Uh, music, obviously, sports, uh, acting, Hollywood, um, beyond. Um he was a favorite. He was uh, talented. He could sing, too, actually. Um, if you saw any of the videos, and I watched a lot of them from over the weekend from their most recent tour, he did not look well recently at all. Uh, just really sad. 50 is way too young. Anyway, uh, that's it for the day. I'll be back with Tommy tomorrow.